This is Client Side from Fox Agency. Hit it! That's what I'm talking about. Wait! Okay now, from the beginning. Lucky Right is the commercial lead at TouchLab, one of the most exciting startups of the past decade. TouchLab manufactures e-skin thinner than human skin, which can be wrapped around hard or soft surfaces to sense pressure and location in real time. Lucky is responsible for sales and marketing, finding and onboarding new large-scale clients and developing VC fundraising strategies. Lucky Right, welcome to ClientSide. Thank you for having me, Nathan. Yes, it's really good to be here. Super excited to have you have you on and even more excited to speak to you about TouchLab, who I said in the intro, are a really exciting um, tech company, probably one of the most exciting of the last few years. I really mean that because you're solving some really fascinating challenges that have stumped businesses since the dawn of the Industrial <laughs> Revolution. I don't want to overstate this here. Um, but so maybe we can start with who, you know, who, who are TouchLab and, and what problems are you solving for your customers? Yeah, I'll just start and say um, you're exactly right. I mean, Jeff Bezos actually kind of remarked at this problem uh, a few years ago at the Ari Mars conference. Um, and he said, if you went back kind of 30, 40 years, people would have expected that the grasping challenge in robotics would be quite simple to solve and it'd be solved quite quickly. Uh, and in reality, it's, I mean, luckily for TouchLab, it's turned out to be an incredibly difficult problem. So we're an Edinburgh-based team of, we've just turned seven people actually, and we're looking to expand quite a lot further because we've just closed a seed round uh, just at the end of February of three and a half million pounds, which was led by Octopus Ventures, which is pretty exciting in itself. And what we're looking to do is solve the touch challenge in robotics. So we've developed this electronic skin technology, like you said, which can be kind of conformed or shaped to pretty much any surface. And in doing so, we're allowing robots to understand what they touch and interact with, which has traditionally been a massive missing sense in robotics. It's quite a, it's obviously a massive challenge, but it's also quite almost abstract to think about. Like if you went into a, like a room, went to pick up a glass like this, you know exactly how hard to squeeze in order to appropriately interact with that object. And then if you went on to pick up something else or interact with something else, you know exactly how hard to squeeze when you touch the object. Now, robots don't have this. So it makes it basically fundamentally a challenge for robots to be applied to certain applications where they'll be interacting with a lot of different things in their environment. So a fantastic example is in retail, where uh, currently retailers will have thousands of people kind of picking and placing. I mean, they've got thousands of uh, stock keeping units. So they'll be interacting with these in thousands and thousands. Now that could be automated. It's really simple picking up an object, placing it somewhere else. But robots can't understand the kind of grasp strength of these different objects. So it can't be automated. And in the long term, we're developing this to be wrapped around tele-operated robots. So we're actually finalists in the uh, ANA Avatar XPRIZE competition. It's one of only 15 teams globally. And what we're doing here is we're applying this technology to a robot that can be operated over 100 kilometers different uh, distance. And now an operator can hear, see, speak, and feel through the robot. So you can effectively have true presence in a remote location. Okay, now you're giving me goosebumps. Very sci-fi. It really is sci-fi, but it's, but it's right here. So, of course, you're right, because you know when it comes to picking up things like glass or sensitive objects, you want to make sure that the robot has some sense of what the item is so they're not exactly. breaking or, or damaging the item. And, and you can see 
the applications, you know, in, in retail quite clearly. Um, and I can also see why Jeff Bezos has an interest in this because it will probably be applied to his factories. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> why has this problem been so hard to solve? Um, and what is it that TouchLab is bringing to the innovation that is finally solving this this challenge? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. So, I mean, at a base level, uh, I mean, we've got thousands of different receptors in our skin and our skin is the largest organ in the human body. Um, and it's also got a lot of different functions that we use it for. So sensing pressure and pain, but also things like temperature control um, through sweating or kind of operating the hairs on our skin. So there's lots and lots of different functionality there. And we're trying to mimic effectively thousands of years of evolution in our sensors. So just in the nature of it, it's obviously a very, very complex challenge. So another great example is kind of how durable skin is, but also the dynamic range of skin. So a person that's probably quite a lot bigger than myself could go to the gym, pick up a really, really heavy weight, but then also blow on their, their fingers, for example, and they'd be able to feel that difference. So that's a massive dynamic range. But they could also then go to the gym every day for, I mean, tens of years, and their skin would still be functional. So exceptionally durable too. Now, what we've got effectively is what we believe to be kind of the closest sensor on the market to real skin and the kind of main, I guess, USP of this alongside the performance aspects where it's quite comparable to the kind of gold standard sensors in the market is the fact that it's a skin-like sensor. So it's thin film. It's actually thinner than human skin. And what that allows for is it can be kind of shaped or conformed and wrapped across any surface. So if you look at a competitor uh, sensor, what they do is they'll have to replace kind of like the fingertip of a robot gripper. But that's obviously not how we pick things up. You don't kind of work like a claw in like an arcade machine. You you grasp using the whole hand. So what this allows for is a complete sense of touch across whole surfaces, which has really been a missing kind of aspect to this challenge. When you break it down like that, it's amazing, really, what the human skin is and what it does. Yeah. We, we take it for granted. Yeah, that exactly. You can pick up and feel these really heavy weights, but you can also feel the most delicate of blows from a, a you know, from a, a bit of wind or what have you. Uh, yeah. It is truly remarkable. And you've managed to kind of distill millions of years of evolution into, uh, you know, this this innovative new, new product. It's, it's fascinating. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I actually read somewhere once that if uh, the earth was kind of, uh, I guess, compressed to the size that you could hold it in your hand, you'd be able to kind of feel uh, the difference between a house and not having a house. Wow. There. So just having that kind of, uh, I guess, accuracy in the skin, trying incredible. to replicate that, it's obviously, yeah, it's, it's quite incredible. So, so let's talk about the business side of this now. What markets have the biggest opportunity for you? We've, we've, talk, we've touched on, on retail, but maybe you can give us a, the size of the total TAM, the total addressable market, which segments are most appealing to you guys. Just, just give us an idea of kind of what you're looking at there. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I'll, I'll steer kind of slightly clear of TAM because um, when I was working previously at Creates Fund, we found that Often it can be quite arbitrary saying we will kind of capture X percent of the market and whatnot. So instead, what we've been trying to do is a bottom up approach. So understand the client problem. And from there, how how kind of big is this market? So for the retail application, so uh, the picking and placing, 
an example client of ours has 15,000 people uh, across the UK that they are literally picking up items from a tote and putting them into another basket or a bag. That can't be automated at the moment because of this missing sense. Those 15,000 workers, if you assume they kind of take a salary of 20,000 um, per year, which is, I guess, fairly modest, that's 300 million per year they're spending just on completing this task, which at a surface level, you'd look at it and say it should be able to be automated. And that's also just the salary that kind of excludes any managers like sick days, pensions, national insurance, holidays. So it is a matter of fact, it's, it's much probably closer to about 400 million. So it's an insane cost for something that's very, very simple. On the other side of it, with the, the telerobotics side, what we're looking to do there is, um, as I mentioned earlier, kind of enable true presence in a remote location without having to have a person in that location. So this is actually really, really prevalent in any environment that's potentially dangerous to people, but that they have to kind of still operate in. So a fantastic example, which is, I guess, more prevalent than ever, is in the medical sector. So healthcare acquired infections are actually a massive global problem, uh, which the World Health Organization before COVID was saying would affect around 7 to 10% of all inpatients worldwide. So 7 to 10% of patients, that is, are going to acquire at least one infection whilst being treated for something completely different in hospital. That's an insane figure and that's global. Um, so the 7% is actually attributed to developed countries and 10% to underdeveloped countries. So that's huge. And actually, unfortunately, since COVID, this problem's actually only got worse. So there were some hospitals uh, in the UK that over a, a nine-month study period had over a third of the COVID infections treated at the hospital acquired from the same hospital. Ain't ridiculous. You actually go to hospital to get an infection. It's 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 bizarre, but it, um, and it's really kind of underspoken about. But this is a very obviously from that a very very real problem. So what we're looking to do here is have the tele robot have nurses kind of control the telerobot, so complete day-to-day tasks through the robot. Now, this won't be things like surgery, which are very, very high level, and that's kind of a different ballgame that other companies are looking at. This is very your basic day-to-day, so checking um, kind of monitors, your, your pulses, delivering food or medicine, um, and we'd like to build up to things like wound care and even injections through the robot. But in doing so and having this proxy between the kind of patient and the healthcare provider, what we're expecting to happen is this healthcare acquired infection rate to fall quite dramatically. We've actually got a, a pilot study running next year in a Finnish hospital, uh, which is kind of the first study of this kind with telerobots in an actual hospital um, to kind of prove whether or not this hypothesis is the case but i mean we're quite confident that it should be and then i guess moving on from medical other applications can be seen in nuclear decommissioning uh nuclear fusion uh space in the like Aerospace, much longer term yeah. so there's quite a few different applications for it but we we're kind of starting with medical because it's i guess it's the lower hanging fruit there uh, and it makes most sense and you can kind of build up from there so talk us through the plan for capturing the opportunity then what what's the go-to-market strategy here yeah so we've actually spoken about this quite a lot with um octopus recently and the plan in retail is effectively acquire two to three main clients and really focus on their needs so this is obviously quite a big uh, aspect of being a startup but making sure that what you're building is actually what the client wants so absolutely understanding the client problem and how you can add value there 
So initially, we kind of start our sales pipeline through selling dev kits, which is basically just quite an easy way for a client to basically get a sensor and kind of test the technology for themselves, understand how it works. Because obviously, what it it kind of seems that we might be kind of overselling or saying (laughs) that we can do whatever you want, we'll be able to do it. So this is quite a nice way for them to see that we actually can kind of deliver on what we're promising. From there, we tend to go and go to a demo. And we've actually got quite an exciting demo um, in America in a few months to one of the biggest retailers globally. Uh, and this will be a kind of innovation day where we'll be displaying the tech in a pick and place application to kind of their leadership team and decision makers. So this is a really crucial aspect, of the, again, in our pipeline of basically really showing them that we can deliver um, on what we're promising and just wowing them. And then as soon as you've managed to wow them, they kind of understand the value of what you can bring. Then they're kind of deep enough in that onboarding process that it's just you can kind of convert from there. And then on the medical side and the tele-robot side, because of one, just the medical industry and all the legislation and kind of regulations and difficulty in actually accessing that industry, but two, because of the nature of the products being very kind of innovative and quite novel, it's really, really difficult to access. So the main thing here is having people to support us that are in positions where they can kind of influence other decision makers that would be important. So again, unfortunately, I can't go into too much detail, but we've got a stakeholder that's very invested, um, that's very high up in the kind of EU uh, government. And what this will basically, and also the the tech side, but what this basically allows for is they can help push us into these sectors, help us with all the legislation stuff. And I think especially to any uh, listeners that are looking at the medical market or anything that's going to have quite a lot of regulation, having these people that are bought in and influential and can kind of help push you into the markets is such a crucial thing. We really wouldn't have been able to get this far without them. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that, that definitely that definitely helps. How, how are customers or prospects responding when you come to them with the proposition? Are they just like, huh? Like, really? Does this really exist? Are they? <laughs> how, what, what's what's their initial response? How do they take to it? Because to them, it must be mind blowing. Yeah. So I think because of the people that we're speaking to, it tends to be people that are kind of their their job role within these big organizations is onboarding new and emerging technology. So they've seen like anything and everything that exists. So I wouldn't say it's necessarily completely mind-blowing, but just because of the nature of startups being quite high sell, they're always very skeptical. Sure. So I think that kind of goes back to the dev kits and the, the demo side of it where it's it's great. We can say we can do X, Y, Z, um, which we, we know we can, but then it's really important to kind of get them to that next stage and going, okay, you try the tech. We'll we'll do a demo for you and show you what we can do. And that's the real, that's the kind of turning point in the sales process where you can really kind of see in their head, they're going, okay, yeah, now we, we kind of trust you enough now. Let's kind of go from here. Talk us through who the founders are of the company. What was their original kind of thought or insight that kind of led them to where they are? And give us an idea of kind of what the ambition of the founders is. Yeah, definitely. So there's two founders, um, the CEO, Zaki, um, who founded the company, and then the CDO, so chief design officer, is Laura. So Zaki actually founded the company with Laura when he was doing his PhD at the University of Edinburgh in electronic skin and sensing. So 
because of this, we feel we're in a fantastic place. And we've actually hired another doctorate in eSkin as well um, since then. So we're in a really good place to really do understand this technology. And his PhD focused on trialing lots of different kind of types of these sensors to figure out which one actually worked best. And that's kind of what we've ended up with. And then Laura being the chief design officer. So she did a master's in design at the University of Edinburgh. And that was very much focused on sensor integration into things like wearables as well. So any kind of new gripper technology that we might be looking at or a robot arm, the whole tele-robot, all these different things, there's a massive component kind of before we start sensing and kind of delivering that feedback to the robot, which is just getting the sensor kind of attached and integrated into the robot system. So the sensors can be kind of integrated or retrofitted, uh, which is quite useful for us because we can add it after or kind of in the manufacturing process. But I think in terms of a founding pair, having deep technical experience is really, really important for the type of technology that we have. So the design side and the integration, but also just the fundamental, how the technology works, why this is the best sensor um, and all that stuff really fascinating and as far as the rest of the team is concerned you said there's there's seven of you now how do you see the team growing and expanding and and the company's scaling over the next 12 18 months would you say yeah so we're definitely looking to hire quite a lot as i mentioned earlier um we're in i would say a really really good place now uh so it is a team of seven and everyone does wear a lot of hats because of that but everyone does a fantastic job um we all get on the culture's fantastic so there's almost a bit of a, I guess, resistance to kind of bring in a lot more people because you know that might kind of change that. So the plan is at the moment to kind of hire quite slowly. We've been advised to onboard no more than, I think it was one or two, two people kind of every one or two months okay. in each team. And the reason for that is you do not want to, if you take on three people to a new team when there's only three people there already, <laughs> that culture is just completely different now. You've got so many so new yeah. opinions, cultures. Right everything else brought into the mix and all the learning obviously will slow everything down. So we're, and this is a, a very fundamental aspect about building companies, but being really, really kind of picky with who we actually hire, um, making sure that there is a culture fit, that they share the same ambition of the founders to grow this company as big as it can be um, and to fundamentally kind of change the world. So taking our time with this process um, is a really, really important part. And I think you'll find that any kind of successful founder will really drill home kind of the importance of, of hiring a great team. You touched on it there, but what, what is the ambition of the founders? Yeah, so I think definitely unicorn status. I think we're looking at this, what we've got in terms of the technology. Um, the initial, I mean, we're very, very early stage, but the kind of initial traction we've received, the interest we've received um, and from investors as well. And yeah, I mean, I, I'm, wholeheartedly believe this could be a unicorn i think for the kind of scottish side of it as well there's only three other unicorns in scotland at the moment um so i mean there might be a few more between <laughs> now and the next 10 years but <laughs> what are they really, do you know what they are um sky scanner and oh, brew dog right. are definitely two of them and i can't yeah. remember what the third one is okay um but yeah i think i think in in kind of 10 to 15 years uh i really don't see why there's any reason why we we can't be along that that mix so yeah, I think definitely that's where we'd like to push to. Super exciting. Last couple of questions and then I'll I'll let you go. What are the applications that are most exciting for you personally? Um maybe maybe if you can just start by talking about your own history and, and background and journey to kind of where you are and then kind of what 
specifically what applications are, are most exciting to you? Yeah, definitely. So my background is actually completely business. Uh, it's only ever been kind of like the business side of it. So going into such a technical company, I guess, is quite abstract. But when I was working um, at university, I actually worked part time in a venture capital fund called Creator Fund, which is a it's a fantastic VC. And basically, they focus on student and academic founders, which is typically quite an underrepresented portion of the population. Whilst working at Creator Fund, uh, the Edinburgh student investment partner kind of discovered TouchLab uh, up here, uh, discovered Zaki and his PhD, found it really, really exciting. And then I was luckily put on the due diligence team to help kind of scope out the, the company and see what we think of that. And then from there, kind of, I really fell in love with what they were doing. I think that what they were doing was really fascinating and super exciting. So yeah, I pushed quite hard to <laughs> to kind of end up here and with the help of the Craze Fund CEO, Jamie McFarlane, who's a fantastic guy. Um, luckily, yeah, I, I managed to get the role. So you're on the rocket ship. Yeah, exactly. Managed to jump on the rocket. So uh, <laughs> and at a really exciting stage, I think being such a small company, uh, lots of growth potential. So yeah, I, c- I couldn't really ask for anything more. And then, yeah, I mean, in terms of exciting applications, because everything that we're doing kind of, I mean, it's just very, it's very, very technical. And then it's, there's a lot of it, which is very humanitarian, like on the medical side. Um, I think that's something that we'll be achieving over the next several years. So that is very, very exciting. But I think in terms of like a long term, super exciting to push towards, which will be over 10 plus years. I think space is one which really does fascinate me. And I think fascinates a lot of people. Um, We've actually had conversations with NASA already um, and some other kind of stakeholders in the space ecosystem. And I think we're definitely too early at the moment where we need to kind of flesh out the, the telerobot a lot more and actually make it suitable for the space environment, which would take, it will take years. Um, there's lots of kind of regulation around that as well. But I think that is definitely kind of exciting. Uh, it's very like Elon Musk-esque, but like yeah, building, building bases on the moon right. um, and all the things like that that can come with that. Musk, um, Bezos, think, got a yeah, list of all the yeah, exactly. So I mean, I mean, yeah, maybe in a few years you'll see you'll see Zaki and Laura <laughs> up there, which would be pretty exciting. Um, so yeah, I think definitely, definitely space. Um, and there is actually um, quite a big. Obviously, it's a much like a very much growing economy, but it costs about fifty million dollars to get an astronaut up to space and maintain them for six months 50. and bring them back down, which is five zero. Five zero million, Incredible. yeah. So it's wow. it's not cheap. Like obviously it wouldn't be cheap, but fifty million is it's like a hell of a lot of an expense. So if you could just have a robot up there that's kind of waiting to be operated, it's got it's going to be far cheaper. So there's definitely there's definitely going to be um, at some point, I'd say in the next ten to twenty years, significant demand for this kind of technology in the space ecosystem. And if the technology that you're developing it achieves its its growth potential if if the founders are able to sit back in five years and say yes you know we're on the trajectory that we want to that we uh, set out on what would have happened do you think that would have enabled that to happen between now and five years time yes that's a really good question um I mean, it's going to be a combination of things. Uh, I I won't reiterate too much. I think having a fantastic team is absolutely vital. And with that kind of maintaining the culture, um, all that kind of aspect is super, super important in in growing a company. Alongside that, in the nearer term, it will be customers in retail would be a massive one. 
uh, we're not going to be able to fund this kind of big telerobot project over 10 years without raising a lot of capital or having kind of some, I guess, bridging money in the meantime, which will be these kind of earlier applications of the technology. So kind of delivering on what we're doing at the moment is really important for the long-term trajectory. Um, and with that capital as well, um, higher, uh, raising hopefully very big fundraising rounds. Um, I think next next raise, so the Series A, will probably look to Silicon Valley and try and get some of the big investors out there on board and hopefully some some big valuations with that. But any kind of capital injection due to the nature of the technology being very, very long development cycles um, and just a long-term company, but also hardware just being more expensive. Um, so the, the, the phrase we keep on hearing is hardware is hard, <laughs> which is obviously quite true. Um, so because of that, it actually puts off a lot of investors. So software investors obviously tend to be much quicker turnaround. You can get your cash out quicker. But I think what we're doing is it's going to require a lot more time and money. So I think understanding that and having investors on board that also understand that. So choosing the right investors, all these things are really crucial. We're going to watch this space with uh, eager anticipation. My final question, Lucky, um, what's what's the biggest opportunity for you in your own growth and development? In terms of my own growth, I would say, and I'd, I'd, I'd say this to any kind of listeners out there that might be kind of young in their career or starting their journey as well, um, definitely being in a small team is super, super important. So at the moment, I'm sharing the office with the two founders. So just having that constant exposure to all the workings of the business is, yeah, it's it's quite um, it's quite invaluable. But then, uh, kind of moving on from that would be a case of staying involved, staying senior. Um, any opportunity for work that comes up, kind of seizing it as much as I can, um, and just as much as possible delivering on <laughs> the stuff I need to do. So at the moment, that is bringing on these kind of few big clients and then starting to deploy across them. If I can start doing that, I'm obviously showing my value to the company. And then from there, I'll get more kind of opportunities to grow, I think. Super exciting. We're looking forward to seeing how, how the company grows over the next few years. Lucky, thank you so much for being on client side. Thank you so much for having me. That was really fun. If you'd like to share any comments on this episode or any episode of Client Side, then find us online at fox.agency. If you'd like to appear as a guest on the show, then please email clientside at fox.agency. The people that make this show possible are Zoe Woodward, our executive producer. Hannah Teasdale is our podcast executive. Jennifer Brennan is our digital strategist, supported by Sophia Ravanis and Alice Winterburn, our social and digital experts. I'm Nathan Anibarber. You've been listening to Client Side from Fox Agency. Join us next time on Client Side, brought to you by Fox Agency.